Comics. Boneless Comics Podcast. Boneless Comics Podcast. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. We like comics because they have no bones, even though fish do have bones, and so do people. Uh, so I guess bones are okay as long as the comic itself isn't made of bones. Uh, anyway, my name is Joe Getcho. And I'm Mike White, and if you're feeling like a fish out of water when you read Aquaman, then we're here to help you. Also, this is a clean comic book podcast where we discuss and review comics by DC, Marvel, Image, Dark Horse, IDW, and more. You can find us on social media at Boneless Comics 1 on Twitter and at Boneless Comics Podcast pretty much everywhere else. And swim on over to our website at bonelesscomicspodcast.com, where you can get more information about the podcast, links to places to listen to previous episodes, an Amazon store, where you can buy your own copy of the comics reviewed, and a link for our YouTube channel, where you can watch video episodes and find additional fun bonus content. Yes, and today we're going to be discussing Aquaman Underworld, which collects Aquaman number 25 through 30, and also Justice League number 24. Published in 2018 by DC Comics and written by Dan Abnett and penciled by Stepan Sajik. And I believe I'm saying that correctly, but uh, if anybody out there is from Croatia, you can correct me. Well, I'm pretty much sure we're saying Dan Abnett correctly. So he yeah, is. Yeah, a... I think we got that one. <laughs> he is an English comic book writer and novelist who has been writing since the 1980s. So another one where he's done a lot of work. So some of the highlights that I found interesting are that he's worked for Marvel Comics and Marvel UK on titles such as Doctor Who, The Real Ghostbusters, James Bond Jr., apparently, Star Trek Early Voyages, Nova, which is one of Mike's favorite characters along with Aquaman, and Guardians of the Galaxy, which the movies are based. And then, of course, he's written for DC Comics on both Aquaman and also Titans for the DC Rebirth branding as well as Superman and Batman. He's also written a ton of stories for a weekly British science fiction-oriented comic magazine called 2000 AD, which apparently includes Judge Dredd, who first appeared in the second issue in 1977 and Abnett wrote in the 1990s. I didn't realize that character had been around in comics so long. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, obviously he's a lot bigger deal in the UK than he is yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. Outside of comics, he's written dozens of novels in the Warhammer universe and several for both Star Trek Voyager and Torchwood, which is a spinoff of Doctor Who. He's contributed his writing to many video games as well, such as Shadow of Mordor, Alien Isolation, Terminator Genesis, and Warhammer 40,000, as well as a screenplay for Ultramarines, which was a British adult computer animated action science fiction movie in the Warhammer 40,000 universe. So I wonder if he'll be working with Henry Cavill in the future. That'd be kind of yeah neat. that's definitely the the thing that henry cavill is doing now so mm -hmm. um i i actually uh, on just sort of a side note about that i was reading an article recently that apparently the reason that he they finally came out with the interview for why he's done with the witcher and he was so relentlessly devoted to the source material that he was antagonistic to the entire writing team of the show apparently wow. so i guess that's what happened that he quit but he's definitely a big nerd and he's really passionate about all those things that he gets involved in so uh, yeah hopefully that'll be good for him yeah uh anyway the penciler today is Japan Sajik and he is a Croatian artist living in the city of Krikvenica where he lives with his wife who is also an artist Linda Luksic Sajik and while he initially planned to become a lawyer he got early work painting as a colorist for Tyler Kirkham so if anybody's been reading DC in the last like I don't know, 10, 20 years, Kirkham has done a lot of work there. He's become a big name and has kind of transitioned from being an interior artist to just a cover artist because he can make money off just doing that now. So Kirkham is uh, a big deal uh, and was before Sajik broke into the industry. Uh, so though Sajik was mainly inspired by comics from Italy, he was introduced to the Western comic book industry through Top Cow's Witchblade which he eventually worked on for longer than any other single artist. His style is very polished and can include either digital or traditional painting, meaning he does his own colors and doesn't require an inker. So he's known for drawing all of his figures, male and female, as overly attractive, sensationalized versions of themselves. So basically, 
the best way to describe it is every single character looks like a supermodel, male and female. Mm. I mean, that's how he draws. So uh, it's very recognizable whenever you see it. Uh, most of his early career is at Top Cow, Mark Silvestri's imprint that publishes through Image Comics. His higher profile work has been on the aforementioned Witchblade, Aphrodite 9, and Sunstone, which is his creator-owned adult erotica comic book series, which has been running since 2011. Apparently. I'm sure that has supermodels in it no. as well. <laughs> yes, yes, I believe it does. <laughs> so uh, in more mainstream comics, Sajik has primarily worked for DC, with an acclaim drawn on Aquaman, followed by Suicide Squad, and then regular penciling duties on Justice League Odyssey. And unfortunately, due to miscommunication, likely due to the language barrier, Sajik was forced to completely scrap the first two issues of Justice League Odyssey and redraw them, delaying the release of the title two months. Yeah, that was, I remember when it came out at the time because DC was pushing a big initiative to have like multiple Justice League titles. And so Justice League Dark had been out of publication for a while and they brought it back. They restarted Justice League, the main book at number one. And then Justice League Odyssey was going to be like the space-based superhero team. And it missed that release window of that other stuff coming out by a pretty big margin. So unfortunately, I think with language barriers, those things happen. But um, his uh, most recent work for DC was Harleen, which he wrote and drew, which reimagines Harley Quinn's origin story with equal parts trashy romance novel and advanced psychology. So uh, in 2020, he actually announced that he was leaving the mainstream comic book industry to pursue his creator-owned projects full-time. However, he continues to do covers for various series at DC, Marvel, Dynamite, and Top Cow. Interesting. All right. So getting into Aquaman here. So Arthur Curry, a.k.a. Aquaman, was created by Paul Norris and Mort Weisinger and debuted in More Fun Comics number 73 in 1941. And if you're wondering, Marvel's Namor, the Submariner, came out just two years prior in 1939. So technically he was first, even though he didn't make his movie (laughs) debut until way after Aquaman did. During the Silver Age of comics in the late 50s and 60s, Aquaman was a founding member of the Justice League. In 1964, he became one of the first superheroes to get married when he wed the undersea queen Mara, even beating Reed Richards and Sue Storm to the punch. And we can't have a conversation about Aquaman without mentioning the 1970s American animated series Super Friends, where he was portrayed as a joke character that couldn't contribute anything beyond an ability to ride fish around like jet skis. This has sparked numerous spoofs and parodies, <laughs> which make Aquaman the butt of many, many, many jokes. But truly, Aquaman is a noble and actually very powerful character, and he became a lot edgier in the 1990s just to sort of compensate for his poor portrayal in the media. His origin and even identity have been revised several times over the decades, but essentially he's the son of a lighthouse keeper, Tom Curry and Atlanta, a water-breathing outcast from the lost underwater city of Atlantis. Due to his heritage, Aquaman discovered as a youth that he possessed various superhuman abilities, including the powers of surviving underwater, communication with sea life, and tremendous swimming prowess. Eventually, Arthur decided to use his talents to become the defender of the Earth's oceans. And if you want a deep dive on Aquaman history, make sure you check out our after show, after the show, of course. Of course. Of course. So today's today's story, <laughs> King Arthur Curry, the Aquaman, is presumed dead, and his throne has been taken by Coram Wrath, a man who has weaponized Atlantis's xenophobia into a means for him to grab power. Using forbidden magic and a hatred of both the surface world and taint bloods, or Atlanteans with fish-like characteristics, Wrath is set on making Atlantis greater than it has ever been, and nothing will stop him from crushing his opposition under his heel. But rumors spread of a vigilante helping those in need in the slums of Atlantis, a man named Orin, who bears a striking resemblance to Aquaman, along with his new ally, Dolphin, one, one of the very taint bloods that Wrath hates. Rumors of civil war begin to stir. Allies begin to appear from Atlantis from without and within, as General Merck, feeling guilty for helping to oust Arthur, murders the mob boss Crush to keep the knowledge that Aquaman lives from the new king. Meanwhile, Lady Mira refuses to believe Arthur is dead, and after finding no help with the Justice League, seeks out Tempest from the Titans, also written by Dan Abnett at this time. 
looking for a magical solution to King Rath's crown of thorns, the magical barrier cutting off Atlantis from the outside world, the former Aqualad and Mera fight to re-enter the city. Unfortunately, while Mera succeeds in re-entering Atlantis, the amulet she used to override Rath's magic is damaged, and she loses the ability to breathe underwater. And so our story ends with Aquaman readying a small army to retake the kingdom, unaware of the peril his beloved is facing. And that is to say this is definitely a slice out of a much, much bigger storyline. Mm-hmm. Dan Abnett's stories are organized into six-issue mini-arcs, but really it's kind of one almost 50-issue long run. So this is really my attempt at finding a story that I could kind of cut out of that and then look at as an isolated incident. So with all that said, everybody, we'll be right back after this break. My father was a lighthouse keeper. My mother was a queen. They made me what I am. Permission to come aboard. Welcome back, everybody. So the story that we're covering today is critically acclaimed for its art. And actually, this is the only piece of Dan Abnett's run that they've republished in a hardcover deluxe edition. Did you feel like the art enhanced the story for this one? I really did. Like, I, I like the art. I like the sort of realism to it and and the facial expressions. Like, they, they were really emotive in all the different, like, panels of things that were happening. And I, I felt like it really brought everything together especially with all the like bubbles in the background of every panel it's like you're looking at Mm -hmm. you know a story that you could see somewhere else but it's all underwater and so there's fish Mm -hmm. people and there's shark people and there's ones that look like people there's ones that look more fish than people and then there's you know bubbles and water and, and everything so it was really cool to you know get immersed in not just the water but in the world of aquaman so i i think it are you (laughs) i'm sorry are you gonna make water puns for this whole episode what are you talking about of course i am (laughs) what are you mean so i um i was aware of sajik before this run but only he was only kind of on the peripheral of stuff that i had read but i really feel like this is a good fit for aquaman because of basically everything you just said it makes the world feel like it's a living breathing place that exists and I I actually have a confession to make. I think that one of the reasons I like Aquaman and it's one of my favorite comics at DC is because they've had like just a long string of like 10 out of 10 pencilers on the book. Hmm. Whoever they've got, it needs to be somebody that can convey motion really well. And so one thing that I notice in Sajik's art a lot is you will see flowing cloth and hair and things Mm -hmm. like that. And the, the sort of expressiveness of that under the water I think is something that you really need to sell that we are underwater because you don't just want to draw everybody like they would look if they were, you know, standing on a street corner or something Mm -hmm. like that. So, yeah, I think it, it really does a good job. And I think that all the characters look very unique and they're identifiable as who they are as well. So like dolphins face doesn't look the same as Mira's and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. He really looked like the kind of, I wouldn't say traditional Aquaman necessarily, but the mm-hmm. Aquaman that I'm more familiar with where he's got like the, you know, gold armor top and then the green fish pants or, mm-hmm. or whatever they're called. And then he's got yeah. the belt buckle that's got like his symbol on it. And so, yeah, very recognizable, which is funny because in the story he was trying to not be recognized. So it seemed kind of weird to me that he was just, I'm just going to wear, you know, it's like Batman. So Batman says, hey, I don't want to be recognized. So I'm going to let people see me in my Batman outfit. Like, well, yeah, everybody knows what Batman looks like. So same thing with Aquaman. So if you're trying to hide, you know, at least wear like the typical thing to do is to wear a cloak and then have, you know, a hood over your head to sort of conceal your identity. But he he didn't. He's just like, here I am in my shiny armor. That's kind of funny. So one... One interesting thing about that, and I think I think this story actually highlights it, is that he's not really known as Aquaman to the people of Atlantis. That's his superhero identity, and so the surfacers are like, oh, Aquaman, and that's yeah, what they know him as. 
the the people underwater know him as the king and specifically in this story as the king that was a little too progressive for them and was trying to kind of combine their society with the surface world and the people were not really a fan in fact it it was so politically volatile during his reign that they're the ones that put Koromrath in power in the first place so Mm -hmm. um this was very much not like a coup or anything like that it was it was more like a legal you know taking over transfer of power in the kingdom and and which of course is why you know he kind of is where he's at at the beginning of the story yeah um what what you are missing context wise and we can we can talk about context a little bit more because i obviously have a lot more than you is that Merc had been the one to uh commander Merc, who's the commander of the drift and they're basically like the spec ops for the atlantean military that's mm-hmm. that's what they are um he was commanded to go kill arthur once wrath uh became king and so Merc did kind of a shoddy job he did attack him there was a pretty serious fight and then he left him for dead but he didn't confirm the kill mm-hmm. um and so a, a big story point in this story is actually him kind of feeling guilty for his actions there once they realize that wrath is a maniac and is you know you know doing all kinds of crazy stuff as their ruler um so but i i guess my question to you is were you able to follow this because there's a lot of terminology and there's a lot of supporting cast that at this point in the arc abnett is going to assume that you already know who they are so there was enough for me but i came in with you know, ha- having obviously seen the movie, so having that familiarity right. with some of the characters, uh, Commander mm-hmm. uh, Merc was in there. Although he looked like he looked like he was crazy, and I don't know, he like he was going yeah. after Mera a couple times. He's kind of I don't think he spoke at all. He just like looked really no. crazy. Um, I know who Garth is because of you know he's Aqualad yeah. and things like that, and Volko. Although you know I was mm-hmm. picturing Willem Dafoe, so it was hard for me because this Volko <laughs> is drawn very differently. So I'm like, oh, okay, that's got to get used to that. Um, yeah. So so having that context of at least the movie and understanding the basics about Aquaman, I found this very easy mm-hmm. to follow because they give you enough of you know even the part okay. about you know Aquaman being the king that they sort of rejected. There's enough in there that it's not. Mm-hmm. not subtle where you can miss it they do sort of explain because they you know the dolphin character wants uh him to reclaim the throne and he has a conversation and i use that in water quotes right. not, not air quotes because you know water quotes were underwater <laughs> yeah well you're uh, underwater so <laughs> exactly we can all see that so <laughs> Uh, he he doesn't want to be king because they rejected him. So he kind of explains that a little bit. So I thought there was enough mm-hmm. in here that they wove in mm-hmm. to kind of let us know where are we at, what's going on. Okay, this is post, you know, he took over the kingship, it didn't work out, and now he's kind of hiding in the streets, again, water quotes, uh, right. the, the waterways as a vigilante in the sort of underground areas of of the society. And it was really cool to see kind of those areas of of atlantis like usually you just get the mm-hmm. special effect shots of like there's this giant massive city underwater and it's super cool and mm-hmm. then we focus on like the action or the fighting and that can happen anywhere underwater but this was really neat to see like an actual society and see you know all the vast different like areas and you know breakdowns of the upper class and the lower class and and all of that stuff it was really cool mm-hmm. to see you know from Aquaman's perspective and you know from actually seeing the underwater city right yeah I would I would agree I think generally speaking in the comics Atlantis feels more like it is just one city in a massive Mm -hmm. you know kingdom that takes place all over the planet because there are other cities um Garth yeah famously is from like I think Idleshire or something like that uh, where he was born with purple eyes and outcast because of that, like he wasn't accepted hmm. because of how he looked. And um, there, there are other cities, uh, especially during Peter David's run, he really did a lot to like expand out. Like, and there's this city, and there's this kingdom, and they don't all get along. And I, I think the movie actually tiptoed into that a little bit with showing different kingdoms, but they didn't, um, they didn't really convey 
a sense of there being like different classes in yeah. this society. So that's that's the thing that's really interesting about this story where you're with the um the ninth tried or whatever, which are are kind mm-hmm. of like the the poverty stricken people or the people that have like genetic mutations that make them more like creatures that would live underwater. Yeah. So it was similar in Wakanda Forever when they showed Namor and their version of Atlantis, where it was really just we we got some shots of okay, there's a large city, and then we see some kids playing, mm-hmm. and we see just kind of like normal stuff that you would see, except you know, again, they're underwater people. So right. that was that was another where it's like, okay, here's a little snippet, but we're really not here to talk about that. So we're going to focus Mm -hmm. on, you know, the story, the drama, the action. So again, for the comic version, it was so nice to, you know, dive into the deep end discover, you know, what was going on in Atlantis. Yeah. There also are a lot of supporting characters that I'm guessing you hadn't heard of besides like Merc and Volko. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, Tula, I mean, I guess, have you seen Garth on, was he on Titans, maybe? Yeah. Um, yeah, he gets killed by Deathstroke I'll, at the end oh, of the first season. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's yeah, great. of course. Um, <laughs> that's Aqualad. We don't, we don't need him. We'll just flush him. Um, and then there's also uh, uh, Jurok Biss, who is the king's keeper of monsters. Uh, so I guess my question is just, did any of those characters stand out to you as being like really different from the movie, or did you look at any of them and be like, oh, I'd like to learn more about that one or anything like that. I like that Volko kind of had more to do because like in Mm -hmm. the movie, he was, he was Aquaman's like mentor and, you know, trained him how to fight. And then he was a vizier to uh, the king, but, you know, he was just an advisor. So he kind of just like, he had a role, but it was very, very typical, kind of stereotypical. Whereas in this, it was like, okay, Mm -hmm. he's, he's like looking at these artifacts and he knows the history of Atlantis. And so mm-hmm. he's able to, you know, get into a lot of areas and be really useful because of his sort of knowledge of like the far reaching history. So it was neat to see him, you know, do something to sort of stand on his own rather than just be like a side character. And like a lot of these, I felt like they were very developed in their own right versus mm-hmm. just being supplementary characters to, you know, the Aquaman story. Yeah, so one um, one thing I wanted to bring up about Volko, obviously, is, you know, the movie version is, um, you know, Willem Dafoe, and he's very, like, he's very, like, svelte and, like, thin and, and fit and everything, and that's <laughs> yeah. basically the opposite of how Volko is always portrayed in the comics. He's always kind of like an overweight politician. Um, I mean, that's that's kind of how you see him, and, and he and Arthur don't always see eye to eye. Like, he can be kind of a problem at times and kind of like a know-it-all and so it was perfect in this story for him to be the guy that that was going like the secret way through atlantis's history to you know find aquaman's trident and uh it, it was cool to see him definitely like he's talking to all these undead kings of atlantis and and what they're like as long as you recognize them and can say their name they won't attack you and then he starts yeah. getting to some that are like so rotted that he can't tell who they can't are. recognize them <laughs> i love that part like because all yeah all these like ghost-like figures come at him and and he's like as long as you like speak their name then they won't attack mm-hmm. you and it was it was like a really cool concept and then it was really awesome to see like on the page and then have him go through and then the person that he's with is like well what happens if you don't recognize someone and he's like well then we're dead like we, there's there's no you know denying it here so hopefully we'll see how my, you know, history knowledge pans out. And he names like a whole bunch of them, like five to 10 oh, yeah. of them. And he's on a roll. And then we switch back and forth to the action and we come back. And yeah, that's when you get the like rotten one where he's like, <laughs> uh, I know who all these people are, but I, I can't see their face. And so he just starts spitting out name after name. He's like, are you this person? Are you this person? And then finally he, he spits one out that, that the figure, that's who it is. And then they stop mm-hmm. and that one can actually talk, which was really kind of strange but it furthered the plot along because it was helpful it, it was it was interesting again these are elements that you don't see in a lot of superhero stories where this mm-hmm. is clearly a fantasy book we've got yeah. you know giant monsters underwater we have undead kings that Volko is communicating with and and you know magical artifacts Mira needs a magical artifact to get back into Atlantis because it's it's sealed off I mean all of those things I think it's really good that they include that because 
um, that is kind of what sets the Aquaman title apart and makes it not just another superhero book. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I really enjoyed that part. And I, I mean, yeah, maybe it's a little convenient that that one king was like, oh, Volko, I remember you. You talked to me a long time ago. And then yeah, they had this conversation. And that was strange. Because I was like, well, how actually old is Volko? And this like, you know, old figure king something or other that had been dead mm-hmm. for i thought he said like eons or something and that i i kind of lost yeah. track of the timing of how he knew volko and, and that kind of thing and then he lets them go like he he's like well i'm bored you know because i'm a ghost and there's nothing to do down here and i haven't con- conversed with anyone and then he converses with them and helps them find the trident and then he's like okay and he wishes them on their way like i was waiting for that moment of like well you can't leave like I need somebody to talk <laughs> right. to. So I'm not letting you leave because I want to talk to you and I'm bored and you can die here with me and we can be ghosts and talk to each other. But that didn't happen. He was just like, all right, cheers. <laughs> that would have been a really interesting complication to introduce to the story. Yeah. I I didn't think of that, but I wish I had because that would have been really cool. Um, that said, there's I, I was just looking at my trades uh, just a minute ago. There are actually... Two more trades within the Aquaman title that continue this story after the six issues we read. And then there's also Mera's six-issue miniseries that is also part of the continuance of this story. So I think Abnett just kind of had to keep it moving because he had so much narrative to get through. So that makes sense to me. But I do get that they could have – they definitely could have fleshed that out more. And I don't know. It was was just fun. Would have been interesting. So – one of the supporting cast I didn't bring up because I want to focus on her for a second is Dolphin. And so she is a fan favorite character that had not really been in comics for years. Uh, she was introduced during Peter David's 90s run and was basically there for, I don't know, like 75 issues or something like that. So she was a big part of the Aquaman title for a long time. And so I have, these are sort of leading questions because I know what the previous version of her was like, but uh, how did you feel about her being mute and also her bioluminescent powers? It was interesting that it was like her hair, like she had long hair yeah. and it was her hair that was bioluminescent. Mm-hmm. And then she had to sort of recharge it, which yeah. you know, helps to serve as a plot device. So that way she doesn't just doesn't like wipe out every enemy they come in mm-hmm. contact with. But I, I guess makes sense in a biology aspect as well. I'm not sure. But if you're a biologist, mm. please let us know on Twitter at Boneless Comics One. But anyway, <laughs> so it, it was interesting with her being mute. And, you know, obviously it sort of gave Aquaman a chance to, you know, he had to figure out what was going on. And then he, he was trying mm-hmm. to figure out what it was that she was after as far as, you know, trying to help him return to the throne, which is not what he wanted. But I kind of wondered, mm-hmm. I was like, well, okay, her name is Dolphin. And when she uses this power, some sometimes she was drawn where she had like uh, scaly arms and I don't yeah. know if her legs were too, but they were green. And then sometimes she didn't. Yeah. She looked like human, basically. So, mm. I mean, in the story leading up to this, we have all this stuff about like mutations and the ones who are mutated mm. kind of stick to the slum areas and, you know, the highborns don't want to have anything mm. to do with them. So it it didn't seem like it came out of left field. But I kind of wondered, I was like, okay, so Aquaman can communicate with sea life. And not that she's sea life because she's an intelligent person, but I kind of wondered if there was going to be some sort of connection that they would form as far as maybe he couldn't, you know, read her mind or because he Mm -hmm. can't read fish's mind. You know, it's more like instinctual. I need you to go here. I need you to swarm there. And I just wondered if there was going to be some communication that they would have or she would Mm -hmm. learn how to communicate with him somehow, even though she's mute and couldn't, you know, communicate with anyone else. But they didn't go that direction. And I'm not saying that they should or shouldn't have. But that was sort of what I was expecting when I was reading it was that eventually they were going to have some sort of telepathic communication that no one else had. And that was going to be her, mm-hmm. you know, unique aspect as a character. But no, she was mute the whole time. And, you know, Arthur kept trying to guess like, well, you know, are you wanting this? Do you want to go there? What What's going on? But her facial expressions made it work. Like the mm-hmm. art really reflected, you know, he would say something and she would have this face where she's like, no, that's not it. And so he'd go, okay, you know, well, mm-hmm. you know, is it this? And then she would smile and he'd be like, oh, okay. You know, that, that must be, mm-hmm. you know, I got the reaction for this. So that must be what, 
you know, what you're after. So that was really mm -hmm. neat to see the art, you know, be able to reflect that and have that communication, which I don't think a lot yeah. of artists can necessarily do because some of the facial expressions, you know, they all look the same or you get that open mouth like, and I can't tell if you're smiling or crying or frowning. So that was, that was really neat to see. Well, I think especially coming off of Blade uh, last time, you know, yeah. where, where we really had trouble with the expressions and the art, I think it's really nice to go into something where their faces are communicating very well what the characters are feeling. So, mm -hmm. and, you know, comics being a visual medium, that's just important. I mean, that's, yeah. that's as important as a director capturing the actor's reaction on camera or something like that. You need, mm -hmm. you need a lot of the visual cues to be able to pick up things that are not said out loud in the story. So, interestingly, I have kind of a split opinion on Dolphin because when I first read this story, I didn't have any backlog reading that was prior to New 52 on Aquaman. So I'd read everything up to this point. I, I was like, oh, she's a cool new character. I like the bioluminescent powers. I Actually, the telepathy thing didn't occur to me, but I think, again, that would have been a really good uh, story idea to put in here where maybe he could communicate with her yeah, uh, you on know, some more level. than most people because he has that limited telepathy. So right. that would have been a really good direction to go. Um, unfortunately, when I went back and read Peter David's run, Dolphin is foul-mouthed and loud and, like, speaks really? her mind and is just, like, a force of nature of a character. Like, like she is not to be ignored. You're going to listen when she says something. Um, so making her mute is kind of the exact opposite of the way she was portrayed in the wow. previous continuity. So I really like her powers because that was not something that she had before. She really didn't have like a thing. She was just kind of like a tag along character with um, Aquaman for his adventures in the nineties, mm. but her personality is like completely, totally different. So wow, I don't know how I feel about it now. <laughs> so because... it's kind of like what they did to Deadpool in uh, X-Men Origins Wolverine, it's, where he was- it, a, It's maybe was a not Falmo. quite that bad. Well, and well, okay, but I mean, but yeah, like, but, but I know what you're saying. Yeah. Wolverine's like, hey, they finally shut you up, Wade. And so they showed, sewed his mouth shut. Yeah. And so you're taking a character that does all of this like vocal activity, let's call it that. Yeah. And now they can't talk at all. So I guess that's what happened to Dolphin. That's kind of weird. I, I don't know if I would have liked that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like imagine um, like the character of Kaine in Nier, but take out most of the swearing, uh -huh. but kind of that attitude, that's mm -hmm. kind of the attitude that that Dolphin has in the older books. So, hmm. so yeah, um, I think that a lot of longtime readers are a little bit split on her portrayal here because it yeah, works really sense. well for this story, but it's so different from, from what came before. That would have so. been funny, though, if the telepathy would have worked and all of a sudden, like, you can hear her voice <laughs> and she's just, like, swearing left and right, like, whoa! <laughs> oh, my Turn gosh, that would have been off. awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been awesome. That See, you're you're making me, um, you know, just just creatively think about the story possibilities that they could have done here. And, mm -hmm. and, and really there's so much more that they could have done with her character. Un yeah. Unfortunately. Um, and, and I was talking about this with um, actually one of our, uh, one of our listeners a couple days ago that Aquaman's supporting cast is actually too large. You can't, mm -hmm. there are so many supporting characters within the Aquaman world that you can't write them all into a story and have them all have something meaningful to do. You'd drown the story. They're, they're, <laughs> exactly. You'd get drowned in it. So unfortunately, I think she's one of those characters that Abnett brought her in because he needed her for a specific purpose and also to be kind of like a, hey, fans, look, we're including her mm. in the new continuity, but then she's not really very involved after this story. I think Kelly Sue DeConnick might use her briefly, but this is really her big you know, display this and like the next, you know, few issues are really the big. I wonder if they give her a reason her. for being mute later. Like maybe something happened to her to where, you know, it caused that if it's supposed to be like in continuity or if they just, you know, retcon the character. I don't remember um, because this is after, you know, the new 52 reboot. I mean, it's mm -hmm. obviously just here's a new version of the character. Yeah, basically. true. I, I don't know if there's any explanation later on of like why she's mute. I, I don't remember one, but it's been a while since I've read this run. So I guess on the topic of 
strong female characters. We also have Mera, who has sort of a side mission going on in this story. And it begins in Justice League number 24, where she absolutely trashes the entire Justice League single-handedly while she's trying to get into the kingdom of Atlantis. So I know that there are a lot of DC fans out there that do not like this issue <laughs> for that reason, because what she puts a skin of water between the Green Lantern's rings to like rip them off so that they can't make constructs. She sucks all the moisture out of Barry so that he can't run fast enough to do anything. She puts Superman and Wonder Woman in some sort of like hard water bubble that's suspended above the ground and Batman is like not even remotely a threat to her. Mm -hmm. So I, I guess my question is, how did you feel about them dialing up her power this much in the story? It's kind of like the the Scarlet Witch thing where, mm -hmm. you know, because we have something that we're trying to do, we're playing up the powers of that character. And then consequently, mm -hmm. what happens? You have another character mm -hmm. that they downplay the, the powers because, you know, we don't want them to just get rid of our story and then there's nothing to tell. So it, right. it's another one of those where it's like, okay, we know that you're overinflating the powers because you have something that you're trying to tell here. <laughs> because how many characters have we, or how many stories have we had where there's some character who trashes the Justice League? That seems like that's just one of those <laughs> things where it's like, we want to prove this character is powerful, so we're going to make them trash the Justice mm -hmm. League. Well, then how are we supposed to take the Justice League seriously if <laughs> our own heroes, like if Batman has a secret that weapon that he can take anyone out on the justice league and you know superman really could take the whole justice league and you know everybody can defeat the justice league then it's like why right do the justice league what good are right. they because everyone can defeat right. them like granny in a wheelchair over here can defeat yeah. the justice league like okay then <laughs> what what's their purpose so it's it's a so little one, much i think that it's a little much but what i what i do accept at at the very least is that she would be able to defeat Batman because he doesn't know anything about her because she actually brings up the point that like, you guys don't know me. I don't interact with you. I'm not on your team. And she really doesn't like Merit doesn't interact with non Atlantean characters very much. So this was a big deal because it is sort of her stepping out into the superhero world a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And in fact, she joins the team proper at the end of this book. And for the next several issues of Justice League, which was written by Brian Hitch at the time, Mera was actually the stand-in for Aquaman instead because he was trapped in, you know, inside Atlantis and he couldn't get out. So it's a cool setup to get them there. And the the I buy that she could beat uh, Batman because I don't really know what he could do to her unless he, again, if he had prep time. But they, they're just like, there's this giant tidal wave. Somebody's like pulling back all of the oceans in order to get into Atlantis. And we've got to stop it because she's like flooding the whole eastern seaboard or something. Yeah. And uh, so that's why they show up not knowing really what they're getting into. Um, I, I think where it gets iffy is with uh, Clark and Diana. I don't see her being on the same power level as a Superman or Wonder Woman. So yeah. Well, I think that's even though they're in the water. Debate. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's an age old <laughs> debate too, is like, you know, if you put Superman in the water, is he as super, is he as super as, mm. you know, Aquaman? And I, I think that's been right. like a, a long standing kind of question. But I will say, like, it's right. really cool. Like Mara's powers are really cool and it's really neat to see the creative uses for them because there were mm. some times where I was kind of wondering about Aquaman, like you know, he's fighting against these mutants. They fight this like guy who can create mm -hmm. like coral constructs basically. And there's all this. Oh magic, yeah. Which, which really mm -hmm. shocked me that we would have magic in Atlantis. Like it surprised me, but then oh, yeah. kept going, I was like, well, this, it makes sense. It's not forced, but, and it's really cool, but yeah. I, I didn't expect it. But, but anyway, so Aquaman's going up against all these threats and I'm kind of like, okay, dude, you know, you're, you're a big brawny dude. And <laughs> you're you're strong and you know how to fight but at some point you're going to come up against some mutant who has a super powered edge over you and what are you going to do you're not going to be able to punch your way through yeah. a coral construct that's like strangling you so at least mara you know you she has more of a chance because she can do a lot more with her mm -hmm. powers whereas you know again it seems like aquaman is like just 
kind of like a Superman brawler, but he actually knows how to fight. Yeah, I have long felt like her powers are more interesting than his. And I think mm. I think the way that they, they find ways to make his powers useful and interesting, and that's kind of part of the narrative challenge of writing Aquaman in a lot of yeah. ways, um, is finding ways to make that cool or interesting. Um, there have been stories, like older Justice League stories, where he and John Jones would cooperate on some kind of telepathic problem because they mm. both can you yeah. know, have some form of limited telepathy. So it's not, depending on the writer, it's not always limited just to sea life. But I think the understanding is that it's easier for him to communicate with them because he's more akin to those life forms. Sure. So what you're saying is sometimes they try out new ideas and they test the waters to see if it will work for yes. Aquaman. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, I did want to say, as far as the Green Lanterns, the fact that the two Green Lanterns that she goes up against are the two rookies mm. made it acceptable to me. If it was Hal Jordan, if it was Jon Stewart, you know, those guys, I would be like, no way. Their concentration breaks enough that she can pull the ring off. But um, it, Simon and Jessica at this point in continuity had only been Green Lanterns for like, I don't know, maybe like 10, 20 issues of Justice League or something like that. So they were pretty new. And the whole point of them being on the league was they were sort of, trying them out and you know showing them how to be a superhero so hmm. um i i do buy that she could take them down at least well but and then um, it makes it difficult too with them because like if you have a weakness like that where their rings can be broken or separated then that makes it a right. little easier because it's like they have all of these you know crazy powers with their constructs but all you have to do is slip the ring off their finger and now they're just you know regular right. people and you can they're kill them easily people. so it, it makes them too easily defeatable i think if their rings are yeah. either fragile or, or can, they can you know separate them i guess what they were going for was that because of what mara can do she's the only one who'd be able to do something like that but yeah you know it, it still seems <laughs> like it might be a stretch yeah i would agree i mean i honestly this is something that dan abnett does specifically with this character he actually wrote a short aquaman arc uh, after Peter David had left the book in either the late 90s or early 2000s. And he, he very much had an agenda to dial Mira's power levels up during that. Mm. And then that's very much on display throughout this entire run as well. I think he really likes that character. And I think that's just a tendency that this writer specifically has, you know, with with Mira. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm a little mixed on it. I Overall, I like it because I think we get the conversation of her talking to the league about how she's like so basically all this time arthur's been king and we haven't been able to be together because of various reasons of politics and all these things and i was kind of hoping wasn't once he wasn't king that we would just you know leave atlantis and put all the politics behind us and not have to deal with that and then we could get married and you know do whatever we want but instead he's trapped inside this city and there's like a dictator in charge and so she just kind of lost it and was like, yeah. it, you know, she thought that she'd finally gotten to this moment in her life that she was trying to get to. And now it's like taken away from her. So I did think it was good that they gave her some agency in the story and like a reason to be um, as involved as she was beyond just like, I have to rescue my boyfriend. It was more like, mm. well, I have these goals for myself in the future. And like, they, you know, I've been waiting and waiting and waiting. And now it's been taken away from me and I'm just done. So. All she had to do was find an alternate reality where, you know, there's an Arthur Curry <laughs> who is without his Mara and go to that one and then kill that Mara and take over and <laughs> make it more complicated than it needs to be. So You know what's really funny about what you just said? Please so tell me. In the 90s, after the murder of Aqua Baby, uh, Mira kind of goes insane. Yeah, that's what they call. They called him wow. Aqua Baby. He didn't have a name for a while. I think it was Arthur Jr. Eventually, or yeah. uh, AJ. AJ might be a different character. Anyway, Mira goes insane at that point in the comics and leaves Arthur. Gets captured by this guy in another dimension called Dimension Aqua that looks like Aquaman and has a child with him, believing that that's actually Aquaman. So if you think Aquaman was due for a reboot before. The new 52, like, yeah, it was definitely time. Like, they'd done a lot of weird stuff 
Wow. Uh, but yeah, that's actually something she went to another reality and found somebody that looked like Aquaman and had a child with him. That's absolutely that's something that happened in comics. I know you were referencing uh, uh, Multiverse of Madness, but that's totally part of Aquaman wow. history. Hey, so... it, it's comics, you know, Stu stuff happens know. in comics. So basically, we've been talking about three stories here, one with Arthur and the Hodeline, or the bottom feeders of the Ninth Tribe, one with Mira in her quest to return to the kingdom, and one with the political machinations at Atlantis with Volko and King Wrath. Did you feel like all the story elements kind of got their due or if there was too much time spent with one or the other necessarily? I thought there was a good balance of all of them and it didn't feel too choppy to where I think we had a few complaints in the Blade story where we would get a flashback that was conveniently exactly what was happening now and it would like add some more backstory and it just felt a little jagged. Whereas this, I, I felt mm -hmm. like it was easy to follow what was going on and we had the, you know, kind of typical scene change where we've got something going on and, and a conversation and it comes to a natural conclusion. And then we switch to, you know, an action scene somewhere else. And then we switch to another action scene. And mm -hmm. each story element seemed to kind of get, you know, enough time that it was able to breathe even underwater. And <laughs> I think that I think that that worked. Although one thing, though, is I call them the Hadalyn and I don't know which. Oh, is OK. Correct because Hadalim. we don't hear Hadalim. that and yeah Hadalim sounds like elvish to me but maybe things in it does <laughs> maybe things in uh, atlantis have a little you know kind of extra pronunciation to them I, I i don't know i don't know i was thinking of sort of an aristocrat calling somebody you know like oh you're a Hadalim. you're one of those bottom feeders you know i don't know maybe Almost maybe i was Klingon. putting a little maybe Hadalim. i was putting <laughs> Hadalim. <laughs> maybe i was putting a little affectation on it for no reason there but yeah. uh yeah i think i would agree with you um i think abnet has a really good sense of story structure and this is actually something that sometimes you can find in star trek that they don't do it particularly well in like a bad episode you may have like a b plot that you don't really care for that you feel like is eating up way too much time like in this one we're going to focus fully half of the episode on Alexander not doing well in school, you know, on the Enterprise, like that kind mm -hmm. of thing. And I don't think any of the plots in this felt like padding. They all felt like they were kind of moving towards the same end goal and they were all furthering the story along. So, yeah, I think I would agree with you there. Another thing that I, I was looking online and a lot of people have described this run, specifically this part and kind of moving forward as Game of Thrones underwater. I have not watched Game of Thrones, so I don't know how that pans out, but I'm assuming that they mean like all the politics and the backdoor dealings with like Volko, you know, and, and the sisterhood or like paying somebody off to let him out of jail and all that kind of stuff. Did that come across to you at all or was that not really something that you noticed? I might start some controversy here, so please please let us know on social media. But I didn't really oh, like okay. I didn't really like Game of Thrones, and yeah, that's fair. I like this. Like I don't. I didn't really. <laughs> I didn't really feel like there was, you know, political commentary in the sense of it was like reflective directly of you know things that are going on. Yeah. In, you know, current events and, and things like that. It was more of the you know, trope of like, we have the sort of upper class and then we have the lower class mm -hmm. and there's this clear separation. And, you know, anyone who's an outcast mutant looks more like a fish than a person gets, you know, shuffled off to mm -hmm. the lower parts of Atlantis toward the seafloor and, you know, they're aristocrats and, and that sort of thing. And the king are, you know, in their kind of separate area. But I didn't really feel like it was like, you know, political controversy okay. or debate yeah or which side do you take you know this isn't a story that you read right. like well i'm i'm kind of on the king's side because you know magic is really helpful <laughs> for you know protecting atlantis and this aquaman guy stirring up trouble you know nobody's going to side with him so right. there wasn't any like different alternate viewpoints or anything in here that yeah. would make you you know feel one way or another about it so i yeah yeah that's that's fair I actually was thinking about it more in line with, um, and again, I'm going to bring up Star Trek again because that's what we do, 
but more in line with Deep Space Nine, where you have a lot of different factions that all have their own agendas and and things that they want to see happen. Like the the Bajorans mm -hmm. have a specific desire for how they want things to go, and the Cardassians do, and the Klingons do. And it feels like to me in Atlantis, there are like you don't see it so much in this story, but like Zebel is very much its own kingdom with its own agenda that does not align with Atlantis and doesn't really want anything to do with them. Um, and then, you know, you in this story, you have kind of the people of the Ninth Tribe who are like, you know, it wasn't amazing under the previous king, but it's gotten a lot worse under the new one. And so, you know, we're not thrilled with the direction things are going. And they're, they're the people that have kind of been left behind and they're trying to figure out how to move forward. And then you've got the, uh, the Sisterhood, which they're... They're almost like the British Parliament, I guess, is the best way to explain them. Um, they're sort of conniving political factions within the kingdom that are always pushing and pulling against each other, like right underneath the king. And I don't mm. think a king can be appointed without their approval. So they helped put Wrath where he is. But then during this story, they start to realize that he's a maniac. And so they free Volko. And they're sort of moving the pieces to... Um, Ultimately, I mean, spoilers for where this is going, but they're ultimately going to put Mira. Put in Mira, power. yeah. Um, they do mention yeah. that in the the story as well. So yeah, I I couldn't remember if they yeah. they did or not. Um, what's interesting is that as the politics of the kingdom play out, there is never a convenient time for Arthur and Mira to get married, though, because the mm -hmm. people still don't accept Arthur. So if they get married, he's king again, and they don't want him as king. Uh, so once she is elected queen, it's like the wedding is off again. So <laughs> that's another, like yet another complication in that whole right. um, story. So um, I, I do see, you know, sort of the, the parallel with things like DS9, where they're kind of showing different things moving behind the scenes and how that affects different who's in factions, power and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, things like that. Yeah. yeah. But it was really interesting to me that Aquaman, you know, having him as a street level vigilante was kind of neat to mm -hmm. see because, you know, that that's the like typical superhero thing. But also mm -hmm. he was removed from from being king. And it, it's interesting. We can talk about the movie in the after show. But I did want to bring up that, you know, in the movie, they're sort of forcing him to be king because that they need to, mm -hmm. you know, have somebody else in power. But it's like this guy is not really he's not suited to be a king he doesn't really want to be a king he doesn't know anything about leading a kingdom and to force him into no. that kind of situation seems like a recipe for disaster and it's kind of you know cool to see essentially in this comic that like well yeah it really is and it didn't work out and the people <laughs> hated him and you know like like yeah you yeah can, you can fight you know maybe he's like a better general or war hero or you know something like mm -hmm. that but as far as like a, a king plus to be honest it's probably boring from a storytelling perspective to we have the superhero who's a king and he sits on a throne all day and listens to people gripe about you know border disputes like we want to see him get <laughs> out there and kick butt but he's not going to yeah. kick butt if he's sitting on a throne so yeah that's the thing too and i think i think it makes it easier as a writer to pull him out of the throne room and and yeah. so that it's been something over the years where he'll get the kingdom he'll get the kingship back or then he'll lose it or then you know and that's that's a a cycle that they go through kind of like with fantastic four it's like we need a sales bump so we're going to break up the team and then we'll get another sales bump whenever they come back together it's like yeah. that thing with like oh aquaman lost the kingdom oh now he's getting it back you know that kind of a a thing but i what I like about this story is that it's justified within his character because while he's talking to Dolphin, he's kind of like, look, I didn't want to do this, but I did my best and everybody hated me and I can't go back there. Like, even if I defeat Coram Wrath and, you know, remove him, I don't have a plan after that. Like, there's no, there's no end game that ends with me ruling over the kingdom again. And so they did have kind of that same moment that they have in the moment in the movie where they're like, well, what's what can I be if I'm not a king? And she's like she draws like the Superman logo with her bioluminescence mm -hmm. and the, you know, the Wonder Woman logo. And he's like, are you saying I should just be a superhero and like just protect people? And and she was basically like, yeah, like, why don't you just do that? Yeah. Like, that's what you're good at. We, anyway. we need that. So. So, so yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. So um 
I I like that, and it really struck me rewatching the movie how much the ending of the movie undercuts that character point. Because mm-hmm. in the movie, it's a big deal that they're like, oh, what could be greater than a king? A hero. And then he comes out in his Aquaman outfit, and he does all the crazy Aquaman stuff. But then they make him the king anyway at the end. So it's like, okay, well, what were you guys talking about earlier then? So I like that in this story, they do stick to it. And it's actually, um, I don't think he gets the kingship back all the way through the end of this volume of Aquaman. I mean, I, I believe even after Mara marries him, which is way towards the end of Kelly Sue DeConnick's run, um, I don't think he has political power after that. So he's still kind of like, it's like he might be like a figurehead, but like she's really in charge kind of thing. Yeah. And she is, she has a lot more of a temper than he does. And she is less, I guess, less progressive than him. She doesn't want them to, like necessarily like we don't need an embassy at the united nations we don't need to interact with the surface dwellers but we also don't need to murder them all so like aquaman is pushing for like let's all integrate with them and the people are like we don't want that you know so mira is a little bit more of like a halfway point between like ocean master who is like let's kill all of them and yeah and you know aquaman who's like let's live alongside them you know she's she's a little bit more in the middle politically so that Mm -hmm. it's kind of more convenient to put her in charge. But, but yeah, I, I don't know, just reading this story really, it really struck me how like, yeah, it makes sense for him not to want to rule. And I don't know that I care for the movie forcing him into that position. I mean, it's in the last five minutes, so maybe we'll see in the next movie that it doesn't work out. You know, maybe maybe. that's where they're going to go with it, but. Well, and I, I, that's what I like about the comic is it sort of like answers that question because it, you know, in that mm-hmm. last five minutes in the movie, all the people are like rejoicing because, you know, we've got like the, the true <laughs> king. It's like that, you know, right. the story where, you know, he, he's not just a king because Ocean Master, you know, sucks and, you know, is oppressive mm-hmm. and he's basically the bad guy. <laughs> and so we're just like, okay, anybody who takes over for him, we're just glad to not have him. We don't care who takes the throne, right. so, you know, but he, he gets the scepter and it's like, he's the true king that they've, I guess, been waiting right. for you know, according Mm -hmm. to prophecy and and so on. But, but Mm -hmm. at the same time, like, it just seemed kind of weird that everybody just started laying down their arms and accepting him because it's like, okay, is this the type of kingdom where if you swim in and you kill the king, you get to keep what you kill. And now you're the king (laughs) because, you know, like, and all the people are going to accept this. So it it was neat to see the more like Mm -hmm. diversity Mm -hmm. in the comic where it's like, some people are not really happy about him taking the throne and some people yeah. don't really care about the you know making peace with the surface world like i don't care for mm-hmm. a peace or a war or whatever you know leave them on their own you know keep them away yeah. from us yeah and and it's really neat to see like an expansive underwater world because i i did a mm-hmm. little bit of of uh undersea diving and the like i think Uh-oh. the world record for scuba diving is like maybe a thousand feet and oh my gosh the average like depth of the average ocean is like thirteen thousand feet and the deepest ocean is thirty three thousand feet and so we're talking like you know even even at 75 feet there's a Mm -hmm. lot of pressure that you know builds up uh underwater that pushes against your body like as a you know a human right so you know once you start getting down to like 100 200 feet i mean it it's like pretty intense and you have to worry about like your your body actually holds air in it like your inner ear and so you have to mm-hmm. you know equilibrate that outside pressure and inside pressure and so as humans it's really difficult for us to go deep underwater mm-hmm. so these you know people in this underwater society they have an amazing physiology to be able to survive not only you know at hundreds of feet or even thousands of feet but at like tens of thousands of feet and yeah. so you know, there's so much ocean on this world. There's way more than there is land. So it makes sense right. that there would be like a ton of different factions with different agendas, and they would actually be more mm-hmm. populous than, you know, the surface dwellers. So if there ever was right. a war between, you know, the underwater kingdoms and the surface world, you're talking like, you know, 10,000 to one, they they would have the grand army. And, yeah. You know, there'd just be more of them. So yeah, <laughs> it would be bad. 
and as you mentioned, they also they also use magic. That is a pretty pretty prevalent yes. element in that was really Aquaman comics. So yeah, was there anything else you wanted to address before we move on to final thoughts? Or no, I think we're ready to take the dive to final thoughts. All right. Comic, comic, boneless comic podcast. Boneless comic podcast. Because they have a bone. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. So this story for me is maybe a 4.5 for me because this is really a high point in Dan Abnett's run. And again, having been reading these characters for like 24 issues before this arc and then seeing them come to this point and really bring Aquaman's character somewhere different where he's decided like, you know what? I don't need to be running the show. I don't need to rule the people. I can actually just Mm. protect them. And that doesn't have to be the way that I protect them. You know, um, I really like that evolution for his character and um, any any of the negative aspects uh, would really be just nitpicky things like this iteration of Dolphin isn't really what I'm used to. So, you know, that would that would probably bump it down a little bit for me if I was really getting technical. But um, I don't think there's anything in it that's wrong, really. And structurally, like we talked about with the three plots, I think they all get enough time to breathe. It also feels nicely like it's just a part of the DC universe. Like it's kind of its own universe that exists under the ocean, but it does feel connected to the world at large because we do see the Justice League. We do see actually the the current then Titans team at one point. And mm-hmm. so you see how these characters interact with the DC world while also being kind of separate. So I I like it. I mean, I think this is one where they knocked it out of the park. It's not quite what I would consider a five because I don't think it, it had the um, emotional hook that I would need for that maybe, but unlike a character and story level, it's really satisfying to me. So 4.5 for me. So I did not have the context that you did coming into this. <laughs> All I had was the Aquaman movie, which I did watch again recently. So it was kind of fresh mm-hmm. on my mind, but also kind of the, sort of general pop culture knowledge of Aquaman, you know, the corny jokes right. aside, him being a character that is actually powerful kind of in the the like underwater arena. And this comic really just blew it out of the water for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it, the character, I, I don't know that the character was necessarily more complex, but the world was more complex. And sort of my mm-hmm. favorite stories are ones where the world is very defined and complex and there's a lot of stuff going on as far as like the world building goes. So like stories like Harry Potter, for instance. So like there's this mm-hmm. magical world and it's all like kind of set up and there are rules sort of for things and everything has a name and it, it feels like a very real world that you could almost, you know, step into and like Lord of the Rings and especially like with Rings of Power that came out on Amazon recently, you know, it feels like this really special world that's kind of its own thing. And I really got that from this, you know, just this one trade of like, this is its own thing. And it's really cool because it's underwater. So it can be whatever they want it to be. There's not really any rules because it's separate from everything that we know. So it could really I mean, it could really exist, like really, really exist because we don't know yeah. 30,000 <laughs> feet below the sea level. So it was really neat. So there's not really, I don't really have any complaints. I still want to hold out that, you know, five out of five for a perfect right. story where I'm like, I just love this. This is great. Yeah. This isn't quite there for me, but it was really good. It's really enjoyable. And I want to know what happens mm-hmm. next. Like I want to like once we're done with this, yeah. I want to read <laughs> the rest of, you know, what happens. And and mm-hmm. especially because it's kind of like a cliffhanger at the end of the trade. It's like everything came together. We're ready, set to overthrow the king and, you know, to be continued. No, I want to. That's know the happens. end. <laughs> yeah. So I'm I'm going to go with a 4.5 as well. You know, context oh, was wow. not something that ruined it for me. Um, not okay. knowing anything again, but basic Aquaman facts. I got into it. I enjoyed it. And. It was a nice, yeah. It was a nice ride. So four out of five. For awesome. Both. Well, you know, thank you everybody for joining us under the sea for this episode of under We Like Comics sea. because they have no bones. Under uh, go sea. ahead and tell Down us what you thought better. of this comic. It's better <laughs> under the sea. Sorry. After after Joe's solo is over. 
Tell us what you thought of this comic by posting on social media at Boneless Comics One on Twitter and at Boneless Comics Podcast pretty much everywhere else. Be sure to use our hashtag Boneless Comics Podcast. Please use the hashtag. So if you liked getting into the underworld of Aquaman in Aquaman Underworld, you can add it to your collection by visiting our Amazon store at bonelesscomicspodcast.com. You can also pick up and read ahead in preparation for our next episode. We're going to jump into our Marvel Comics time capsule to discuss Avengers Annual Number 10, published in 1981 with pencils by Michael Golden, and the Cry Vengeance story from Marvel Superheroes Number 11, published in 1992 with pencils by Mike Vosberg, and both written by Chris Claremont. Oh, very cool. And don't forget to check our YouTube channel for the after show where we'll discuss all things Aquaman. Thanks everybody for listening. Thank you.